The Culture Builders Podcast. Conversations with experts in the areas of leadership, growth, change, and everything that affects our working world. Hello, I'm Jane Sparrow, author and founder at The Culture Builders, and I am excited, thrilled, curious about today's podcast because we have with us an environmental consultant of the year and she is going to talk all around the role of bees and honey both in the environment and in our lives. So I'm thrilled to explore that, to explore the role in terms of honey and well-being and how we can all take more ownership of bringing the the life of bees into our lives for our own and our organisational performance. So welcome, Paula Carnell. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really honoured to be a guest. Well, having seen you as a honey sommelier myself, that was the beginning of our our, uh, journey together, I was immediately entranced by some of what you said. Also, it resonated so much with what I, the listeners, the people we work with, I know really believe and find interesting. So you're, you're a bee consultant, a honey sommelier, which I was fascinated and loved when I went along, author, speaker, podcaster, as well as the winner of your Environmental Consultant of the Year Award. And I know that you travel the world, but we want to explore a little bit around your journey, as well as the roles of bees in the bank of me and your attitude towards well-being. So let's start with your journey. Tell us a little bit more about you and how you found bees. What's the, what's the history? Well, it is quite a cool story, really. I started off as an artist. That's what I thought my life purpose was. And I had a 20-year career as an artist. I had a gallery, a publishing business, you know, limited company, employed seven people, um, and really had grown from nothing. And then when I was 40, I completely collapsed and I spent the next seven years bed and wheelchair bound with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder that's genetic. So it took six years of me being bed bound before that was actually diagnosed. So it was quite a journey. Or well, two years into being ill to help with mindset because I could no longer paint. I'd lost my business. You know, I really was just flat in bed with people looking after me. And um, I would try and think, well, what can I do rather than what I can't do? And one of the things I'd always wanted to do was keep bees. Had no idea why, you know, there's no history of it in my family. But my husband sort of gave in to all the nagging and he built me a beehive. So I had a hive in the back of the garden. So the idea was I could lay in bed and watch bees. And a local chap put bees in my hive and he taught me beekeeping. And as he was teaching me beekeeping, it was sort of going parallel with me learning how to recover and how to be well. And I started to see similarities. So the first thing that really struck alarm bells with me was after we'd taken the first harvest of honey, my mentor, lovely, lovely Chris, he turned up with this big pack for the bees and it was sugar, sugar fondant. And at that point, I'd given up sugar for a good few years because I found that by eating sugar I had more inflammation more pain a lot of nausea um, and dizziness so all these things were worse when I ate sugar so I'd given up processed sugar Mm. and I could not understand why anyone would give processed sugar 
you know, to ourselves or our kids, let alone wild animals. And that's when I first started to ask questions about beekeeping. And I realised that most beekeepers feed their bees white processed sugar from August to April. And that really, really horrified me. Wow. I mean, first of all, I'm intrigued by you giving up sugar and the role that had. So quick question before we move on, because there's so much I want to unpick. Um, Did you replace sugar with honey at that point? Yes, I had. And also with um, stevia and um, xylitol. So I was having natural alternatives to sugar. But what's interesting is when you give up processed sugar, your your demand or your cravings for it drops. So you end up no longer needing sweet things. You can have a tiny amount of, of something sweet and, and you're satisfied. So we don't really appreciate just how addictive processed sugar is. And it's that addiction that we all have. And when people say, oh, you know, my only weakness is I eat chocolate. But actually, when you ask them what chocolate is it you're eating, they're not eating a raw, organic, you know, 85% cocoa chocolate. They're eating something that is actually 85% sugar with a little bit of cocoa added. So it's really being much more aware of how much sugar we are taking in, you know, with your sauces, with any processed food. It's really starting to be more conscious of of just the sheer volume of sugar people are consuming. And is it any wonder we're addicted to it? Indeed. And I know that, you know, this is a huge topic now. And thankfully, a lot more of us are aware, which is the first step, isn't it? And then starting to act on it as well and and change our everyday habits. Um, Let's go back to your bees then. So you're you're horrified by this um, diet that these bees are being given. What happens next? Well, so then I started to ask questions within the bee community. And the first response I had from a very wise, um, experienced beekeeper was, well, don't be silly. Everyone knows that sugar and honey are just the same. And it took me 11 years, you know, before I could come up with the perfect rebuttal, which is, well, if they're just the same, why do we go to so much trouble to steal the honey? You know, <laughs> we could just stick with the sugar. So we know, you know, deep in our souls, we all know that there's something magical about honey. And when you actually look at um, other, you know, sort of spiritual and and religious groups, there's so much information about the medicinal properties of honey. In the Quran, there's a whole chapter called the bee, where Allah had given his wisdom of of the bit or all of his wisdom to the bees to pass on to humans. So the, you know, we should be living or learning about how the bees live in an organization or as team players and actually, you know, be inspired by that and and to live as good humans. So, you know, there there is such a an intricate link between humanity and bees. And I do believe that bees are, you know, that that connection between the heavens and humanity, but also the the canaries in the coal mine, you know, they're in the same environment as us. So if our environment is making bees sick, then what's it doing to us if we're in that same environment? Yeah, so that whole interdependency, I think, is fascinating and probably something that not many of us think about often enough. And therefore, our role in making sure we continue to nurture the environment for our bees so that they can deliver back to us to, to nurture us, which, of course, you know, there's a huge amount of questions I have in that for you, which I love. I would love to explore. Um, you said, though, just now about the religious and the spiritual link. And I I think you said something to me when we were talking before about also the Buddhism link as well around the belief around reincarnation. Tell me a bit more about that. 
Oh, yeah. So I was really lucky when I sort of recovered and I started working as a beekeeper, I managed to um, get a contract for a local estate that was then closed to the public. And we had two years before they opened to the public. So it's now the Newt in Somerset. And I was responsible for setting up all the bee programme. But because my way of beekeeping was very controversial in the beekeeping world, you know, I'm a natural beekeeper, not feeding sugar, not using smoke um, and not using any chemicals inside the hive to treat um, bees. I intuitively knew this was the right way to do it. But knowing that I was going to do such a big project that would be open to the public, there was um, a, a risk that we'd be really opening ourselves up to a lot of criticism once we were open to the public. And because, you know, who was I, a former artist, somebody who'd been sick and now suddenly seemed to be having an amazing job with bees, I needed to literally become an expert. So what I did was in the summer months, I worked with the bees and was setting up the, the whole system. And then in the winter months, I literally reinvested every penny I earned to travel the world to find where the bees were healthy and where the people were healthy too. And when I turned 50, because it was such a momentous time to be well and to be working with bees, doing something I never, ever imagined, I wanted to be on top of the world because I felt on top of the world. And also as a, as a teenager, I remember hearing about how Himalayan monks were living for an extraordinarily long time and they put it down to the glacier milk that the monks were drinking. So this is the frozen mineral rich water. And I've actually done a TEDx talk. So if anyone wants to know a bit more about that, then just look me up on TED. It's but, worth um, it, by the way. I've listened to it a number of times. Um, but do carry oh, on. <laughs> thank you. And so Bhutan was somewhere that I just was fascinated with because of the Himalayas, because of the monks. But also I learned that they, they had um, many different species of bees, but they had indigenous bees and they didn't have Apis mellifera, also we believed. But also... The Buddhists believe that the highest level of reincarnation is as a bee. And there the Buddhist monks don't eat honey and they don't use the wax. So I was so curious with this. But it's also one of the, the only countries in the first country to have a completely chemical free agricultural system. So the people are not eating chemicals in their food. And I found this fascinating. So one of the winters I went out there um, uh, November, December 2018. And I just traveled around. I had guides and a driver. You have to have a guide. You have to have a driver when you travel around Bhutan. And they just took me to all the bee places. And I met bees in honey houses. And I met monks and meditated in these amazing temples where you've got wild bees hanging outside and just learned about bees. And yeah, it, it was it was life changing. I mean, I really recommend anybody who wants to to have a deep spiritual dive you know go to the you know particularly Bhutan because it is so it is so special the people are still so special and so untouched by the outer world so you're looking at a, you know a place that works when they're living in harmony with nature. So I'm, I'm loving the the kind of the bees have started you on a new journey from not only helping you have focus from being sick but also then once you're recovered they've sent you along this whole new path of exploration across the world. And you're bringing that insight in both into the new at the time, but then to all of the thousands of people that you've had interactions with ever since. And, you know, when I think about our concept of the bank of me and the fact we have these six areas that we look at to make sure that we're healthy 
and productive. As you're talking, I'm thinking, gosh, these tick so many of these because we talk about physiological, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. So nutrition and and how we make sure that we're mindfully fueling ourselves with deposits in our human bank account. We talk about emotions and the emotional well-being and emotional health that we have. And just listening to you is filling me up with positivity, thinking of your experience and how you've walked and, and talked and, and faced into times that a lot of us might have given up. But you oh. really kind of looked at, well, actually, well, what can I do here and what can I control? And and I love your focus now and that you've got so many things you could be doing, but, you know, you're really focusing on where, you know, you can do things you love and add value. You're growing the whole time. And that that also that kind of um, the journey around that purpose and spirituality. I, I love that connection as well, which one may not have thought about when we started talking about honey. So let's talk more about honey and bees and, and their role in health and well-being. And from all of your work, you know, what, where do you believe that, that honey and indeed the bees as a, as a source really play a core role in our own well-being in life? Well, I really do believe that the bees are that connection between the heavens and humanity. And so they're here not only to teach us, but also to heal us. So what I feel we've lost as humanity, you know, much of humanity, is we've lost our connectivity with all of nature. We've forgotten that we are part of nature. And if we are part of nature, then what's our role? And therefore, what's the role of other other beings, you know, be they plants, trees, animals or bees? Mm. And I do believe that bees are here to teach us. So if the highest um, state of reincarnation is as a bee, then you're looking at these bees being a whole a whole organization of llamas, you know, the, the the highest, most spiritual humans are then coming back as as bees. And when you work with bees, you have to be present. You have to be very conscious of what you're doing. And we now know, I mean, it's been known for thousands of years, but now science is proving it, that so many aspects of the bees are healing. So from the venom, from the propolis, the um, the pollen, the royal jelly, the honey, you have all this and the wax it's all healing but also the mere vibration of the bees being in the presence of the vibration of bees reduces anxiety reduces tension and there is much more now about vibrational medicine and the healing powers of different frequencies and vibrations which also raises questions about other frequencies and vibrations that we are exposed to and how that affects us as well as the bees so, you know, there's so many layers to learning from the bees and there's so many gifts from the bees and they do just keep giving. You know, you start off thinking, oh, yeah, I'll have bees because I like honey. And then it just it opens up into this whole new world of, of magical medicine. And and I love the fact that you say that they just keep giving and they do. And there's definitely a role for us to give back, which we'll come on to as a vegan for many years, though. I can imagine anyone else that might be vegan is listening to this thinking, but we're taking away from the bees. You know, they're giving and we're taking. What's your view on that and, and how that interdependency is is right or, or feels off, off kilter? OK, yeah, there's lots of levels with this. So the first sort of superficial level is if you're vegan and you don't agree in honey, then are you eating um, organic um you know, chemical free food, because 
for instance, if you're eating almonds and they're not organic, then the the mass production of almonds is one of the biggest killers of bees in the world. And it's not just the honeybees, it's all the other 22,000 species of bees who pollinate our food. So if you're buying or eating food that is is sprayed in any way, or even genetically um, modified food is now shown to really impact bee health, then you're not helping bees. Then you can think on a more spiritual level, if the bee's purpose is to heal humanity, and one of those methods of healing is honey, if we're not taking the honey from the bees, and I don't mean exploiting the bees, I mean just taking a little bit of honey, then are we depriving them of their purpose? You know, you imagine as a, you know, I'm a mother and if you're a mother and you've given birth to a child and people say, oh, you know, you've done so well, you've given birth to this child, but it, we don't want you to look after it because we don't think you should. That's depriving you of your purpose. It's, it's looking at what are our purposes and it fills our hearts and our souls when we are able to give. And if we stop the bees from being able to share and give their gifts, then what impact is that having on the bees' well-being? You know, if they're more conscious than us, if they're more superior than us because of their, you know, their ancestry and their their reincarnating sort of level, then how are we depriving them? There is actually vegan honey. And, and as an international honey judge and part of the honey sensory analysis group in, in Bologna, um, We've had lots of discussions about this, and I have approached companies involved to find out what it is they're actually doing to produce this um, honey without bees. And it raises several questions. So what makes honey honey is the bees are taking nectar from the plants or from the secretions of aphids who drink, who eat honeydew. And then the bees add enzymes. So they then break down the sugars and make the honey much more easy to absorb for humans. And it then becomes a, a much more beneficial form of sugars. I mean, there's about 180 compounds in honey. Now, if you're trying to make honey without the bees, how exactly are you doing that? Now, I know it's a very laboratory intensive process that they're doing. But first of all, they're growing plants. So if they're growing plants to harvest the nectar, then... Um, could they be growing plants, A, that are sprayed with chemicals to produce a large amount of them? So therefore, we'd be ingesting those chemicals. Secondly, if they're taking the, the nectar, aren't they taking food away from bees? So that's that. And then where are they getting the enzymes to break down the sugars of the nectar and to dehydrate the nectar to make it in a honey consistency? So are they taking enzymes from bees, in which case, you know, that opens a whole can of worms? Mm. Or secondly, are they synthetic enzymes? And what's the impact of us having synthetic enzymes in our food system? So there's all these questions we need to be thinking about. And if we are to take honey and to do it responsibly and to be part of nature, our role is to ensure that there is enough nectar, there's enough flowers and trees that are flowering all around the world to feed the bees so that they have a surplus of honey allowing them to not only feed themselves and produce their wax, but also to have a surplus to share with humanity to help heal us. So this is the interconnection of all things, is we need to be looking much deeper than, you know, our beekeepers using, you know, leaf blowers to get bees or frames. You know, it's it's sort of looking at it that way. 
Yes, there is intensive farming in some beekeeping practices, but there's also a lot of very sustainable beekeeping and very sustainable bee farmers. So we need to have more transparency in the whole beekeeping and honey production process, whether it is the artificial honey or the real honey. And then the consumer can have a choice. And there's so much in that. I mean, I think this whole holistic way of looking at what we're eating, how we interact with the world and so on is such a big area for us to understand more about. And I'm convinced more and more is going to come out around that so that we can make more educated choices moving forward. But I think there's just something that you're pointing out there about being curious and and just thinking it through, well, how did this get here? And and actually, is that better or not? But but just tell me, the, the honey then, they make the honey, the bees. What, what about the surplus honey? What happens to it? Because they don't use it all themselves, do they? So if we don't take it, what happens to it? Well, the problem in, particularly in the UK, is actually the bees very rarely do have a, a lot of surplus honey, which is why they're having to be fed sugar. So the bees need honey to get them through the winter months. And that's why out of the 22,000 species of bees, there's only 11 that are honeybees. And they're the only species of bees that have a whole community that lives through the winter. So their main reason for collecting enough nectar and then turning it into honey is so the honey is preserved and can feed them through the winter months. Now, um, if you... um, So if you're taking that honey, you are at risk of the bees not being able to feed themselves and dying. Now, if you have if you look at the bees and the way they're collecting nectar, they're collecting nectar through the summer to get them through the winter, to get them through the next spring. If it's wet or there's no flowers, the next summer, if it's a poor summer, which we sometimes have and the following winter. So their surplus is actually just planning ahead. So when I have a colony that suddenly seem to have a lot more honey than they have in previous years, I'm starting to thinking, oh, my gosh, are we going to have a harsh winter? Are we going to have a nasty spring or have has this been the one really great summer? And if you look at the the amount of honey that different countries produce year on year, it varies because it's all very seasonal. It depends on what's happening. If you have a wet summer, the bees don't fly. So they've got to eat what they had in their hives. So it it is very complex and there's loads and loads of research about how much honey bees need to survive through the winter. How much do they need in the in the summer? I mean, they need eight kilos of honey just to produce one kilo of beeswax, which is their home. It's, you know, makes all the wax cells. So they do need honey. But what I do personally is I meditate with my bees before I take honey and I ask them. I just say, how much can I have? And, you know, they don't fly out and spell out numbers, but I get a feeling. And this is where I think we are connecting with nature is with our intuition. And all of nature is communicating through electrical fields, through, you know, sound, colour. There's there's this mass communication with all of nature. And why would we be outside of that? We are part of nature. And I think our way, our receiver for nature's communication is our intuition. And meditating is one of the ways of receiving information from nature. And like all muscles, the more you use it, the stronger it gets. So I ask my bees, I say, right, it's rent day next week. How much honey can we have? And I do it hive by hive. So obviously, if if you've got a thousand hives, this is not, you know. A, a it might take a, a while. <laughs> yeah, it might take a while. But I know of commercial beekeepers who, again, work on intuition. They look at the hives. They look at the environment. They go, actually, we're not going to take honey this year from that hive or 
you know, whatever. So we need to be more tuned in and connected with our bees and with our environment to then be more sustainable with our practices. And therefore, if we're doing that, we get more benefits from them giving to us. Tell tell me more just a little bit about the, the benefits, the health benefits of honey, because we've got many that we sort of assume, but there's many more than maybe we might realise. So when I first started learning about honey, and of course, we all heard about Manuka honey, well, Manuka honey was the first honey to be proven to be medicinal. But this doesn't mean that the other honeys aren't. There's two other honeys that have also been proven to be medicinal, and that's Siddur honey from the Middle East and North Africa, and also, um, um, oh, Nayuli honey from Madagascar. So they they have been proven to be medicinal. So they have antioxidant, antibacterial um, properties, and they've been tested on different, um, you know, overall with their sort of anti-cancerous properties. That's the main thing people are looking for. So you're testing honey there on a pharmaceutical level, which takes a big budget. Mm. So there's no way that, every beekeeper can then test their honey to see whether or not that batch is medicinal. But what has happened around the world is certain regions produce different honeys. So I was speaking at a conference, an apitherapy conference in Turkey this summer, and the region we were in, um, Dusce, has a lot of sweet chestnut forests. And so a lot of their honey is sweet chestnut. And there was a lot of studies that they've done in their universities about the medicinal benefits of taking sweet chestnut honey. And they found that it will lower blood pressure. But actually what honey does is they test it for lowering blood pressure. But what we find with medicinal herbs as well is they tend to balance. So it's not a one hit thing. So everyone who takes sweet sweet chestnut honey will have different responses depending on what their body needs to be in balance. So if you have high blood pressure, it will lower it. If you have low blood pressure, it will raise it. So the whole thing about nature is finding a balance. They also did trials on sweet chestnut honey with um, Alzheimer's and dementia. And they tried it on people who were um, susceptible to, you know, to to go that route. And they found it delayed onset. And then they also tried it on on patients that actually were, you know, um, suffering with dementia and Alzheimer's. And they found that it improved symptoms and with it prevented progression and with some people actually reverse symptoms. So, you know, there's still lots of research ongoing and and lots of different regions of the world have their honey that they believe is medicinal. And indigenous people have known honey's, you know, medicinal. So they don't need to have the, the science to back it up. But what is exciting for particularly for us in the West, who have, have become very dependent on people telling us what is medicine and what isn't, it's really great that the science is catching up with what human intuition has known for thousands of years that, you know, plants are medicinal and so is the honey. And we know as well the bees will go for specific plants for their medicinal properties. So a hive that that has a particular mineral deficiency will go for a, a nectar source that will balance that mineral deficiency. And as someone that takes your sweet chestnut honey on a regular basis, I can tell that not only does it do great things, but it also tastes great as well, which I think is important. If you're going to take something regularly, actually make it something that you enjoy having and enjoy doing. So and I love the idea that thinking really intentionally about the honey that one has because of where it's come from, the types of plants and, and environment it's been in. 
as well as then what it does is really important. And it really struck me when I asked you when we were doing our sommelier work, well, you know, what, what honey would you recommend? You were talking about the need to have pure honey. And that yeah. a lot of the time what we buy isn't maybe as pure as we might think. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Honey is the second most adulterated food. So there's a good chance that many people who say they don't like honey have never actually eaten real honey. So every supermarket in the British Isles has been repeatedly fined for fraudulently selling honey. So I, I give people tips. I say, well, if you want to know if it's honey, for, ideally you want to buy from the beekeeper. Then you have that whole other level of asking your beekeeper, do they use smoke? Do they feed sugar? What chemicals do they use in the hive? Are they using antibiotics? You know, what miticides? And then you can make that informed choice. But the adulteration is a global issue. It's a massive, massive problem. And the key thing is if you buy a jar of honey and on the back it says a blend of EU and non-EU honeys, there is a potential for adulteration because honey in the big market is sold in big drums. And so what will happen is honey refiners, so some of the biggest companies that you might be familiar with that, that sell honey, are actually honey refiners. They're not even calling themselves packers now. And so they will buy these drums of honey and then they will refine it. They'll blend it. They'll filter it. And some of the drums may not be entirely honey. So you can have a small proportion of honey and it could be diluted with sugar syrups, rice syrups, water, um, all kinds of crazy things. So if if really you cannot sustainably sell honey for less than five pound a jar. So if you're spending less than that, I don't care how big or small the jar is. If it's less than five pounds, somebody is is not earning a living from it you know it's um and a lot of beekeepers around the world now their main income is actually from hiring out their bees for pollination not from honey production and that's a very sorry state of affairs but we can take responsibility of that you can't blame the beekeepers if the consumer is is always insisting that we should be paying nothing for our honey you know it's it's the same with all our food you know you somebody is trying to earn a living from producing really good food so we need to start taking more responsibility about the quality of our food and and paying for it you know out of your your income you know what are your priorities and health really is your wealth because when you don't have health as I found you have nothing you know I lost my business you you know and it costs you a lot of money to be sick you know you need to have people coming in to do things for you if you can't do them yourself so we really have to think can I afford to be sick for a week for, you know, six months, for six years? You know, what would happen to your wealth if you were that sick? And it all comes down to how you manage your life and your food and what goes in and around your body when you are healthy or when you think you're healthy. And how long does it take before you you become chronically ill? You know, I didn't get ill overnight, although it felt like it my body had spent 40 years trying to keep a balance and then by the time I was 40 it just went well I give up you know I've, I've tried everything but you're not listening so that was you know a dramatic way that I then had to really look deep and dig deep and understand how my body works how is the machine of my body out of kilter and what can I do to rebalance that and regain my health and so much of what you're talking about again will resonate with people listening because there is we, we always talk about prevention rather than cure in terms of well-being and getting those healthy habits in never too late. You know, start today if you're listening to this so that you're not then having to cure later on. And, and this feels like a big part of that. But 
you we're talking there about owning it really ourselves. Are you seeing a, a difference in terms of people stepping in now a little bit more to own their own well-being and make those informed choices? I think we, I feel definitely we sort of culturally we'd slipped away and certainly in business we found a lot more people sort of hoping other people would do things within the organization to provide the right environment and don't get me wrong that's hugely important that we have an organization providing the right environment just like we need to provide the right environment for our bees but but also us individually taking more control and realizing that our attitude needs to shift are you seeing a change there Paula? Oh, I'm definitely seeing a change. And I think, you know, we all know the, you know, 2020 vision, we can look back at those few years and, you know, you can see there has been a change. And I think when it becomes difficult to go and see a GP, um, you know, when it's difficult to get help, you are forced to look into your own well-being. But also, having been so sick for so long and gone through that very difficult journey of recovery, it's given me a lot more compassion about sickness. And when we look at the hive and the health of a hive, you have one queen and you have 49,000 or 50,000 female bees and you have a few hundred male bees. But the health and well-being of the hive is, is a group. It's a community effort. And if you have a healthy queen, the bees are healthy. If you remove the queen, the bees get sick and will die. And I think we can use this with a business analogy. And it can be very easy as a business owner to grow your business, grow your teams. And you think you're telling everyone what they've got to do and and the machine of your business is running. But if you are too absent, it's like being an absent queen. The the good vibe, the pheromones that you give as as a healthy, you know, mentally, physically and environmentally a healthy leader has an impact on your whole team and if you're always away on holiday or you're away in meetings or you're not they they can't have that contact with you you can start to see the collapse of the health of your business and so I think we need to look at everything although taking self-responsibility there are going to be people that will be more the queens and there are going to be people that are more the workers and there'll be the people that that fit in between you know and we have to be compassionate about that and take ownership of what our role is. You can't make everybody queens and you can't make everybody a worker. So it's really thinking of what is your role and, and what is the impact of your role on the environment around you, both the, the people and the nature around you. So, yeah, I think it's great. People are taking more self-responsibility, but we also have to take responsibility for our role in our communities. Yeah, and I love the way that, you know, there's such a strong link, isn't there, to the dynamic within a culture, you know, healthy hive, healthy culture in a business or an organisation. And the queen that that was occurring to me as you were speaking there, the queen metaphorically being present as well as really physically being present. And in a world where there's so much and a lot of the businesses we work with, there's so much change going on. We're constantly saying, you know, just remember to be present in every sense in what you're doing, because otherwise it is a bit like the Queen, you know, being absent, isn't it? And it has a huge impact. And that point around every single bee in the hive knows their role and they know how they contribute to the production of the wonder of of, um, all the products they give us, including honey. So I think there's so many parallels. And, and I know a few conferences we've run ourselves, we've used bees as, as the metaphor, actually, for it. And it's a wonderful thing to think about. But I'm also wondering how we bring in the vibration element of it into some of that work, too, because I think that could be fascinating. But 
there is so much more we could talk about. And I'm conscious that I want to wrap up to give people the chance to digest what they've heard. Two more things I want to very briefly explore. One is what we can be doing to help create the right environment for bees. So perhaps two things you could tell us about that in a moment. And then secondly, two tips for well-being from your world and what you've discovered on your journey that we have only touched the surface on, I know. So let's first of all go to our role in this community, in the environment for, for this interdependency with bees. What, what two things would you say, if nothing else, think about doing to help us create the right environment? Okay, so the first thing is stop buying or eating any chemically grown food. Um, so if we do that, that will transform the agricultural system. The second thing is to plant more wildflowers or allow more wild areas, just planting more for bees. So sowing plants that will give the bees more nectar, because if they have good good food, then they're, they're going to be healthier. So that's the two things. Just stop buying chemicals. You know, don't blame other people for spraying. Just stop buying it. <laughs> you know, and that changes things. They And they um, feel really simple things as well in some ways. I mean, we've got to be really mindful because so much is, is particularly the chemicals, but simple things for us to have in mind, get more aware of, and then hopefully act upon. And and I know one of the things we were talking about with us with a group the other day was just, could you give a small part of a garden, if you've got a garden, to being bee friendly, you know, accelerating, perhaps allowing it to be a bit more meadow like, even if it's postage stamp size, you know, just to do something to help create that environment. So I love those two things. Switching to ourselves and our well-being. What are your two top tips from from your world around well-being? Oh, gosh. Well, nutrition is everything. So your your water and your food, you know, make sure that everything you put in or on your body is doing your body good anything unnatural that you put on or in your body your body's got to process and it's very difficult to process non-natural things so really think about everything you eat and everything you put on your skin going back touching again on frequency and vibration the thing that's really important is protecting ourselves from the the toxins in our environment and emf radiation is really really a problem and because it's invisible, we don't really see it. So the best thing you can do for that is grounding. Now, this time of year, it is not so easy to walk barefoot out in the garden. Um, but just try uh, even being conscious of when is the last time you were in physical contact with nature, be it swimming in the sea, putting your hands in the soil gardening or just laying on the grass. And because we pick up such a strong electrical charge, you know, positive charge, we need to discharge it. And by grounding and being connected with the earth, it resets our electrical currents and it enables our bodies to heal. So I would say grounding and nutrition are two of the top things. Consciousness is that start. Once you start um, refusing to have a blind eye and assuming that just because it's on a, a supermarket shelf, it must be edible and safe. It's actually thinking, you know, I, I used to think that anything grown in the ground like potatoes and carrots must be safe because nobody would sprayed them. But then I wasn't conscious of just how much was poured onto the soils that goes into the soils that the, the roots are feeding on. So stop being blind. You start with small things, but it, it then grows. And when you realise the impact these chemicals have on the things that are pollinating them, it becomes easier to pay 
even three times as much for a can of baked beans, you know, because you just think I, I cannot bring myself to eat something that I know is not going to help the health of my body. My body, it, it's so important for the work I do that I retain my health. You know, I'm, I've just turned 55 and I've, I've got a lot of things I want to do. So I really have to be conscious of everything that I, I put into my body. And so, yeah, the priorities of, of grounding and of, of eating, you know, healthy food, drinking clean water, really, really important. Yeah, and that hydration point, again, you know, it's the baseline, isn't it? The number of people that we get into really complex conversations with around their bank of me well-being, and then you ask them how much water they drink and they look at the floor. And, and you kind of, gosh, you are running a major, major corporation, and yet the basic habit of drinking enough water each day is not happening. So come on, let's get back to basics. If you can run a major corporation, you can drink more water each day. Paula, I could talk to you for hours and I would love to have you back on and talk more. But for now, I feel like you've given a huge wealth of your experience and some things for people to think about that are practical. And one could be forgiven for thinking, oh my gosh, there's just so much that I'm not doing that I should be doing. But at the same time, I feel like there's a number of things in what you've talked about where we could all say, what one thing could I start doing as a result of listening today that would help me. And you've given us lots of ideas within what you have been talking about. But final question, if there was just one thing you would say to people they could do to, to get started, something maybe, maybe micro level, what, what might you say? Just choose one food to eat chemical free and grow from there. Just think of one thing, be it potatoes, carrots, lettuce, just think of one thing and, and make that change and see how much better you feel. Or maybe a big thing, it is a hard thing, is just give up sugar. <laughs> yes, that, that is a hard thing, although not impossible for us. And actually, if we all took a little bit less sugar, that might be a really good first step. So as I say, so much more to explore. But for now, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to having you on again, but also seeing how you continue to impact the world through your talks around bees and also, of course, continuing to have your hives so that we can all benefit. Thank you, Paula. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Continue the journey at theculturebuilders.com.